Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener is brought to you with support from Bunnings Warehouse. So welcome to episode five of Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. Uh, I'm Jo McCarroll, I edit the magazine New Zealand Gardener, and with me is Rachel Clare, who edits our weekly e-zine, Get Growing. Hi Rachel, how are you? I'm very good, thank you Jo. And what is happening in your garden? I have been weeding like a maniac. So in the weekend, I even got up at 6am one day and started weeding. The days have got really glary, haven't you noticed? And I don't cope very well with that. I start to wilt. Well, I have been picking sweet peas because oh. I've got such amazing sweet peas. I love sweet peas. Everyone loves sweet peas. I love sweet peas too. I'm growing all sorts of sweet peas, including the lovely sweet pea New Zealand Gardener. I didn't realise there was a New Zealand Gardener sweet pea. I think you'll find it was released to celebrate our 75th anniversary by my close personal friend, internationally renowned plant breeder, Dr Keith Hammett. Now, it is a great time in the garden. There's lots to sow and plant. One thing I'd really um, encourage you to give it a go is planting gherkins or pickling cucumbers. Um, so they're just just a cucumber, basically, but they've been bred to be pickled. So they're a little bit bitter to the taste. They're not kind of crisp. They're prickly, aren't they? They're prickly on the outside. The flesh is a bit denser and they don't have as many seeds. Um, so, I mean, you can actually pickle any kind of cucumber. Um, but with the normal ones, with your, your bigger cucumbers, it, the, the the flesh can go quite watery, so they um, they go quite soggy if they get pickled. And the the little thicker, bumpy-skinned gherkin pickling cucumbers they'll stay much crunchier when they've been uh, when they've been pickled and preserved. Do you have a secret to pickled gherkins? Well, I mean, I try a lot of things. I often put in the flowers from the dill, or nice. maybe some garlic cloves, or p- any kind of pickling spice is nice. And I mean, they are fantastic homemade pickles. You'll never ever go back to the bought ones. They're so delicious. I pickled so many last year that my partner said in what some people might have considered to be a reasonable tone, you know, have we actually got the McDonald's contract? (laughs) But anyway, if you're going to grow gherkins for pickling, it's really important that you have enough plants, that you have enough gherkins that are about the right size to pickle at any one time. So that's, I usually have about six or seven because you you don't want them to get too much bigger than, say, five centimetres, maybe five to eight centimetres. Otherwise, you're going to have to chop them up and then they're not going to be crunchy. They'll be soft. Yeah, and that's completely different from cucumbers because I grow two, normally grow two types of cu- two cucumbers and that is enough and I will have harvest about 100 probably over the season. They're just as prolific as cucumbers, of course, being cucumbers. So yes, you don't have a problem with supply, but it's about keeping on top of them and picking them regularly, having enough to fill a jar and pickling constantly so you have beautiful crisp gherkins to eat yourself or give away as presents. I have been doing some home science and changing the colour of my hydrangeas. Well, I've got a hydrangea called Renate Steiniger. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I was told it was a really lovely, reliable blue one. But we have a heavy clay soil. Clay soils tend to be alkaline, and it keeps turning purply pink, and I do not want this mishy-mashy colour. So what I have been doing is I've been trying to make the soil more acidic, so I've been putting aluminium sulphate into the soil, like digging it in around them a couple of times a year, just to see if that changes the colour, because the acid, acid in the soil makes them go blue. And if you want pink flowers, you need to raise the pH of your soil and make it more alkaline. So what you can do in that case is you can add lime to your soil. But to make things super simple, you can just buy hydrangea bluing or pinking tonics at your garden centre. Might as well buy paint. Yeah, you could. You could try that. You could dip them in gold. Give them to people for Christmas. 
So another thing that I think it's a great time to do in the garden right now is make a liquid fertiliser. It's really an easy-peasy thing to do. All you need is some organic material and water and maybe a bit of time. Um, so I have comfrey in my garden, and that's a brilliant, brilliant uh, source of nitrogen because those big leaves are packed with nitrogen that the taproot has brought up from the lower levels of the soil. So you pick the leaves, you gather an armful or two, and you chuck them in a barrel or a lidded bucket. You put some water on, and you just leave it for a month or two. And if you don't have comfrey, you can use uh, grass clippings or sheep or cow or horse manure. You can use roadkill if you're not especially squeamish, um, fallen leaves, green waste, or any mix of the same. Um, but it is really important, and I cannot stress this enough, to do this in a container that has a lid, because all of these things, including just green matter, become really stinky after a while. But that stinkiness is goodness, so it's not a bad thing. Keep it in a lid bucket, maybe stir it a couple of times, and then um, after a month or two, dilute it to the colour of weak tea and give that to liberally to anything in your plant that's actively growing. And that'll just give it an amazing nutrient boost. I have been doing one of my favourite things, which is we'll be inviting friends over. I'll go into a mad panic and want everything to look amazing in the garden because, you know, they have really high expectations since I am the editor of the world's best gardening e-zine. And um, so I rush down to the garden centre and I buy plants and I pot them up. And then I have these beautiful pots of flowering plants and people will always comment on those and look at those instead of the garden and, or, and noticing any weeds. A really good tip. And in fact, if you're thinking you just want to put some quick pots together for a bit of Christmas cheer, um, one little trick, which is really worthwhile, I just, this is how I pot up plants and pots and baskets myself, is to think about a thriller, a filler and a spiller. Ooh, so I like it. in your flowering plants, you want something that's going to cascade over the side. Um, like I've got uh, dichondria. And then you might have a filler, which just takes up all the space. I'm using alyssum. And then you've got a thriller, which is something really spectacular and flowering. So I've got, say, climbing sweet peas in one of them. Oh, lovely. And that means you've just got everything happening. And like Rachel says, no one will notice the weeds because they'll just be so distracted by your amazing plantmanship. <laughs> experienced gardener will rave to you about the benefits of mulching and how it's the key to fertile soil and healthy plants. My own garden has a challenging clay soil that takes on a concrete-like consistency in summer, but since I've started mulching like a maniac, I've witnessed a huge improvement in my soil's health, and I am now a fully-fledged mulching convert. So here is my masterclass demystifying the magic behind mulching. Mulch is a protective layer of material on top of your soil, so it insulates it from dryness, it warms the soil up, adds nutrients and suppresses weeds. The word mulch comes from the Middle English word mulch, meaning soft and moist. In nature, soil is usually covered by a layer of mulch from decaying matter such as leaf litter or ground covers. In most cases, it's really unnatural for soil to be left exposed to the sun and wind, and the same goes for your garden beds, Open exposed soil always suffers more in summer than soil that's partly shaded, mulched or even weedy. In spring and summer, when plants are growing rapidly and conditions are heating up, it's particularly important to mulch your garden because it prevents the soil from drying out and it also allows the plants to put their roots down deeply so you don't need to water as often. So if you mulch well, you'll be conserving water as well. In saying that, mulch can also extend the growing season by trapping warmth around crops in the cooler months. So it works the other way as well. 
mulch also suppresses weeds. So if you add a good thick layer, say 10 centimetres deep, weeds tend to grow long and spindly trying to get up to reach the light and they're therefore easier to pull out because they haven't put their energy into developing strong roots. As mulch breaks down, it also improves the structure of your soil as well. So what can you use as a mulch? So much. Commercial mulches such as pea straw and bark-based mulches are popular choices and can be bought by the bag from garden centres. Now, pea straw lasts around one season, but it improves your soil structure as it breaks down. Now, birds do like to kick it around, so you may need to put some bird controls around it if you don't like a messy look. Bark lasts three years or longer and also improves the structure of your soil, but it breaks down much more slowly. Now, if you're mulching on a budget, use what you've got. So at my house, we make mulch out of Fijoa tree leaves. We leave them to rot down over autumn, then we pile them on the garden in spring. We also use our Fijoa tree prunings, which we put through a mulcher, and um, we leave those to sit for a while as well. Lawn clippings are an excellent nitrogen-rich source of mulch, and they're particularly good for nitrogen-hungry citrus. Now, just don't spread it more than a couple of centimetres thick as it can become slippery and stinky. Seaweed makes a fantastic mulch too. It's rich in valuable nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. So head to the beach and just make sure you gather seaweed that's been washed up and is on the tide line. Other options include shredded cardboard, newspaper. I've heard of someone using their bank statements and old diaries. You can use sheep, dags, bark, pine needles from your Christmas tree. And compost can be used as mulch too, although that won't really help you with suppressing weeds because weeds love compost. Finally, you can also use your old bean plants, comfrey leaves or cover crops such as mustard and lupins as mulch. So you grow them in over winter and then before they begin to flower, you chop them down and then chop them up and put them on your soil. Now, all plants benefit from mulch. Spread it around your trees and shrubs planted within the last year. Spread it around your fruit trees and bushes, perennials, bulbs and annuals in the flower garden. However, be careful not to smother small plants or touch the trunks of woody ones, as this can burn the stems or soften them, making them vulnerable to disease. Go for a donut shape of mulch around trees. Other plants, such as strawberries and lettuces, are happy to be tucked up snug as a bug in a rug in their mulch, though. And in the case of strawberries, this also keeps their fruit off soil, so it stays clean. And the golden rule is also to water well before you mulch or mulch after rain, so you're not locking dry soil in. Basically, mulch, mulch, and more mulch is what you need. Follow this many-layered approach to gardening, and your garden will reward you with mulch joy. Our masterclasses will help you grow something together with Bunnings Warehouse. Fluttering in to talk to us today is Jackie Knight, also known as the Butterfly Lady and Madama Butterfly. Now, Jackie lives in Auckland and she's the Secretary and Trustee of the New Zealand Monarch Butterfly Trust, which works to protect and enhance our butterflies and moths and their habitat. And she also goes and talks in schools. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Rachel. Nice to be here. Now, I have been really enjoying the monarch butterfly action in my garden. So I've got swan plants that have grown really big since last summer. And um, about a month ago, I noticed the monarchs laying their eggs on the leaves. And now I have hundreds of little monarch caterpillars. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it, how you can, how they um, seem to duplicate. You look at your plant and you think, oh, yes, there's a couple of eggs on there. 
and next thing they've um, it wasn't a couple of eggs, it was a hundred eggs and you've got a hundred caterpillars. So <laughs> many of them. And um, something that I've noticed is that they, you know, they, they get really fat eating all the swan plant leaves and then they wriggle away and some of them are making their chrysalis on the weatherboards of my house and yeah. other and other ones like found its way, like crawled quite far to this little terracotta pot where it's made its lovely little <laughs> green chrysalis. So why do they, they do that? Well, they, they know that if they go away from the, um, the swan plant, the host plant, that they're less likely to be found by predators and parasites. The host plant, they know that that's where they're more likely to find the lunch that they prefer. Some of them, um, one man had a swan plant at one end of his garden and he found they all went down to his letterbox and made their um, chrysalis there, about 50 metres, I think he measured it, which was a long way to go. So they've got a real will to survive, haven't they? They sure have, yes, it's amazing. They're, they're poisonous though, aren't they? Is the black part on them poisonous to birds? By eating swan plants, they become poisonous because the swan plant is actually poisonous. I mean, it's not like you'd chop up a leaf and add it to somebody's salad to kill them, but it does have cardinalides, a hard word to say, in the leaves. And by eating the leaves, the caterpillar becomes poisonous. But there is one bird in New Zealand, the shining cuckoo, that doesn't mind the poison, the taste of them at all. Other birds would eat the very first caterpillar and say, yuck, that tastes disgusting, so they won't eat them again. What else predates on them? Well, wasps are their biggest pest in New Zealand. Um, Various social wasps. I mean, there's thousands of wasps, but the ones that we don't like in our garden are the ones that... um, the ones that sting and will take the caterpillars home back to the wasp's nest and feed the protein caterpillar to the juvenile wasps. So my caterpillars have made their chrysalis. How mm-hmm. long will they be in it before they metamorphose and emerge as beautiful um, monarch it's, butterflies? It's about 10 days in the middle of summer, so it might be slightly longer with Auckland's variable weather at the moment. Um, you know, today's quite cold but sunny. Um, they need warmth and light to go through the process. But about 10 days is sort of average. So what should we plant to provide food for um, monarch butterfly caterpillars and the butterflies themselves? OK, so monarch butterfly caterpillars need milkweed, which is, for example, swan plant, but there are other, uh, other plants in the milkweed family. But also butterflies, every different species of butterfly, there's not so many in New Zealand, um, they need nectar flowers. So the adults fly around and they need nectar to sustain them. So quite often daisy-like flowers are the best sources of nectar. It's very hard to say specifically what are the best flowers for butterflies, but the best way of looking is when you're walking past a colourful garden see which ones the butterflies are resting on and, and getting their nectar. And how long do they live for, the butterflies? Monarch butterflies will live six to eight weeks after they've finished doing what they're here to do, which is to reproduce. So a female monarch butterfly keeps creating eggs until the end of her life. Um, they tested one in somewhere in the States, and she actually made 1,100 or something eggs isn't that amazing? Yeah. So the average monarch might lay 300, 500, 700 eggs. Nobody's quite sure. 
And so they mate with a succession of males until all of the eggs are fertilised. And at the end of the life, they usually do a, something which is called egg dumping, which is just they lay a whole lot of eggs. And after that, they have run out of eggs and they just fly around for a while until they die. You can usually tell the older ones because their um, their wings have lost a lot of scales, so they look more brown than bright orange. Bright orange when they come out of the chrysalis, and then brown and creased and faded, and quite a lot of their wing might be missing with the older ones. They get that quite tatty look, don't they? They sure are, yes. The ones flying around my garden now are the ones that overwintered, so they were um, they came out of the chrysalis in autumn, late autumn, and then over the winter they found trees in huge clusters, and then they come back to your garden in the spring and start the next generation of monarchs. Something I love about monarch butterflies and their chrysalis is that they have that gold on them. <laughs> I believe that scientists now say that that is how the creature within the chrysalis breathes while it goes through its metamorphosis. However, I like to tell children that nobody knows the secret of the gold dots. And then if they work hard at their studies and reading and and science, they might go on to university and become an entomologist. And I love the way when I make up the story that the children's eyes light up and I can see their mind ticking over and they're thinking, oh, that could be me. I'd love to become the discoverer of the secret of the gold dots. (laughs) And you can tell which ones are male and which ones are female, can't you, by the gold dots? Yes, you can. No, not by the gold dots, but the male monarch butterfly has two dots on its wings and thinner veins than the female monarch Ah. butterfly. So people can go and look at the Monarch Butterfly Trust website if they want to find out more about monarch butterflies. Yes, we um, love having people asking us questions and learning more. So it's a very comprehensive website, uh, which is monarch.org.nz. Thank you so much for your time today, Jackie. You've really set my heart a flutter. <laughs> That's great, Rachel. Pleasure. So we better answer some questions, Rachel. I love questions. Well, we've got one here that I think a lot of gardeners will be very interested in the answer to, which is the dreaded guava moth. Guava moth is a menace. It will literally eat your fruit trees out of house and home. And do you know why, Joe? I know you know why. But because the adult female moth, she lays her eggs in a range of fruit, and when the caterpillars hatch out, they immediately dive for cover into the flesh and fatten up inside your fruit, ruining it, and then you get fruit with brown, rotten patches. Mm, and potentially larvae inside. And that, of course, it's called the guava moth, but it has such a range of potential hosts. It affects feejoas and pears and nashi and apples and peaches and plums, um, macadamias, mandarins. Lily pillies. That's what it um, eats in Australia, which is where it's from. Mm. Um, So it's a really difficult one to control because, of course, unlike coddling moth, which you can predict according to the season, you know, the the adults emerge from the ground and start looking to mate at a certain time of year. Under New Zealand conditions, guava moth has just a perpetual life cycle. cycle. It's just continuing, continuing to re-emerge and reinfect. 
It's not picky at all, is it? It's a real pig. Guava moth is a real pig. Um, so, I'm, I mean, in terms of how to treat it, there's various theories, but, I mean, none of them are a silver bullet. You know, you can you can use neem. Um, the one that I think is the most effective we have available to us at the moment is you can cover the developing fruit. Um, that's coming back to this thing that I keep mentioning, which is a physical barrier. If yeah. you can use um, horticultural mesh over the, the, the fruitlets just as the fruit starts to form, then the adult moths won't be able to lay their eggs on the surface of your fruit. But, I mean, that means your garden is full of these looming white shapes and it's perhaps not, you know, the beautiful space that you want to hang around in and entertain your friends. So I thought that we should talk to some experts who are leading the way seeing what we can do to get rid of this menace. Which is a good idea because the answer will be in science. Yeah, that's right. So since 2017, Plant and Food Research, in partnership with various organisations, including feed-jower and macadamia growers, they have been studying guava moth and looking for potential control options. So I'm going to be talking to Andrew Twidal from Plant and Food Research, and he has been looking into semiochemical control of guava moth. So, Andrew, tell me, to begin with, what is semiochemical control? Well, I think the best way to start off with is describing what semiochemicals are. And, and they are chemical signals that organisms use to communicate with each other in their environment. So, all sort of across all groups of um, organisms, there's communications between uh, different insect species, um, insect to plant, plant to insect, and even microorganisms as well. The most well-recognised examples are pheromones, and that's obviously between members of the same species. So how are you using that with guava moth? So with guava moth, we're sort of taking a two-pronged approach with a pheromone analogue for the male, you know, one compound here that can have the disruptive effect. And then for the female, we're trying to develop an attractant based on the host plant. So... We've looked at the native host for guava moth, which is magenta lily pili, but we're also looking at its non-native host, which is the commercial feijoa trees, and we've collected the odours being emitted by the fruit and leaves of the plant, and then we're taking those to the lab and we're trying to identify what smells they're producing, and then we're taking those compounds and applying them to the female moth and seeing which compounds she's actually using to find somewhere to lay her eggs. So you're trying to confuse the male as well and then trap him, is that right? Yes, that's right. So when a female moth's calling, as we call it, or releasing her pheromone into the air, it creates an odour plume downwind from her. And when the male comes across that plume, the male starts a zigzagging flight behaviour in and out of the plume. And so what happens is the male's not getting the signal that he's out. He's left the plume of pheromone. So in other words, they get confused and can't, can't find the female. I understand that initially Plant and Food Research conducted a natural enemy survey. So they were looking for a biological control and they didn't find one. And is that because guava moth isn't native to New Zealand? Yeah. When a plant gets fed on by a pest, and it's obviously, you know, a pest that it's evolved with, so in Australia there will be parasitoids probably for guava moth, but not that are going to operate on this, you know, in our systems, so to speak. Andrew, that has been fascinating, and I wish you great success with your semiochemical solution to keeping our home orchards safe from guava moth. 
Oh, thank, thanks very much, Rachel. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to say, obviously, thanks to all those funding our research, such as the Fijoa Growers Association, uh, MPI, uh, Plant and Food, uh, the regional councils, the macadamia growers. I mean, we're getting a load of support. There's a huge a amount of support. support. For this work and obviously appreciate that as well. So, Thanks so thank much. So I'm going to have a chat to Brian and Helen Coker, whose beautiful garden, Stonycrop, is in the December issue of New Zealand Gardener. Now, this is a big garden in West Melton. It's packed with rhododendrons, a lot of perennials, woodland treasures, uh, and an absolutely beautiful garden to visit any time of year, but especially in spring. Hello, Brian and Helen. Good morning. Morning. Um, so just describe your garden for me. It's a new garden, just five years old, uh, but developing. So... The core of the garden is approximately 200 rhododendrons with uh, smaller trees. So being uh, around three-quarters of an acre, 3,600 square metres, we decided that planting large trees wasn't the best best option. We didn't want to be dealing with pruning them in, in 20 years' time. So we've, we've tried to go for choice smaller trees that, um, you know, perhaps top out at 8 to 10 metres. Uh, and then we have this underplanting of um, perennials and other uh, plants that we've sort of seen in magazines and uh, lusted after for a long time. So we have sourced many of those from different nurseries around New Zealand. You're definitely both great plants people. I mean, do you know how many plants you're actually growing? How many different sorts? Well, we grow um, broadly sort of a range of uh, different plants. So we have rock garden plants. We, we have what we term woodland plants. And then we, we've got perennials at that level. Then we've got um, shrubs, which are predominantly are the rhododendrons. And then we've got uh, choice trees and, and a variety of uh, trees. So going back down again, I mean, the tree level we've got, um, We've got a selection of maples. Despite the nor'wester, the maples survive. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, to start with, we chose the bigger-leafed ones because we'd read that they cope with the wind better. But now we've got a little bit more shelter. We're starting to put in the, the finer-leafed maples. We've got quite a selection of cornices and viburnums, mm. um, the Judas tree, the prunus. Um, and you've also got an extensive edible garden? Yes, we have got quite a big um, vegetable garden. It's a raised garden with um, macrocarpa um, slabs around the edges um, to make it easy for, for Brian when he's gardening. And it's a good height. It's about 500 um, off the ground. So mm. it saves bending as we get older. And you've got those beautiful fruit trees espaliered over the Patonk Court. Very beautiful espalering. Uh, yes, we've quite enjoyed doing that. We weren't quite sure what we were doing to start with. We bought these really tall trees and then we were told to sort of cut them right back to virtually nothing. So we get them um, branching out to the side and at each level we have to do the same. But yep, the advice was good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, good now. It's a nerve-wracking choice, isn't it, to cut all that growth away? Oh, I know. It was. <laughs> so you moved on to this property in 2014. Can you tell me why you moved there? Uh, it, it really was um, because of the fact that I'd lost my legs in the earthquake and was spending part of the time in a wheelchair and my mobility really was compromised. But our old home in St Albans in central Christchurch 
really wasn't suitable long term. Uh, and ACC had made some modifications for us, but it, it still wasn't ideal. So we thought about building uh, so that we could get a single-level home with, without any steps in it, and we tossed up whether we waited till I retired or whether we um, did it sort of at that time, and, and we decided we would go ahead and do it straight away. So that's that's been a, a very good move in hindsight because it meant that, you know, while we were younger, we could establish the garden, and uh, and we we got a home, and uh, um, the whole property doesn't have a step on it at all. Are there other ways the garden's been designed, Brian, so you can access the whole garden and enjoy it? Uh, yes, that was the plan. I mean, it's not totally accessible for Brian, but I mean, I think we've got it about 90%, hence mm. the raised vegetable garden, and we've got some big kaikoura rocks around the edges of some of the other beds, so um, Brian can sort of sit on those or use those to sort of get into the garden. Um, and I know your garden is open to visitors through the New Zealand Gardens Trust. Yes, uh, we, we decided, much um, probably about 18 months ago, uh, uh, after having our arm twisted by Penny Zeno at, um, up at Harden, she persuaded us to join the New Zealand Gardens Trust. So that, that trust is, is a grouping of um, people with gardens that are open to the public. And our intention had always been that we would open the garden to groups because we liked meeting other gardeners and sharing the garden. So uh, we thought that through the New Zealand Gardens Trust was a good way to do that. And of course, I first met you guys in uh, 2015 when, Brian, you nominated Helen for New Zealand Gardeners Gardener of the Year. Yes. And and why did you do that? Uh, It was really, in that initial phase, it was a lot of work for Helen, a lot of the hard work in, in turning over the ground. Uh, and we had an awful lot of stone in in the ground. Um, it's sort of old Waimakariri River um, riverbed, really, and hence the name Stony Crop because it felt like um, all the ground could grow with stones. But uh, it, it was it was a lot of work for Helen, and, and I felt that uh, after all that work, and when I saw the competition advertised, I thought, well, really, Helen deserves to have some recognition. And it had been through a period, too, where there'd been an awful lot of focus on, on me and what had happened to me and my rehabilitation. And uh, Helen, you know, as, as my wife often got left behind and, uh, you know, just sort of didn't get factored into things. So I was quite conscious of, of that. And uh, it was nice to shine the spotlight on her for a change. I mean, I know we've spoken before about the role gardens can play for all of us, regardless of what happens to us, in terms of our mental health. Do you think it's played a role for you both? Um, definitely. Yeah, we, we've always enjoyed gardening, and it's nice that we can still get out there and, and do something together, because there are a lot of things that we did do that we can't do together now. So it's really nice that we can have that common interest. It's a happy place for us both. It's relaxing being out in the garden. Um, yeah, it's just mm. peaceful. It, especially yeah. such a beautiful garden as yours, which is really looking spectacular after such a short period of time. And I can't wait to visit it again myself, hopefully in spring. But you've got stuff all year round happening in Stony Crop in West Melton. Yes, we've tried to have um, different plants 
that are, are of interest through the seasons. You know, nice deciduous trees in the autumn for the colours and the late flowering lilies and roses heading into summer, the spring bulbs to start with. Always room for one more, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. Hey, thank you so much. Really nice to talk to you again. And next time I'm down in Christchurch, I'll come round and see how the garden's oh, looking. Do. Bye, Helen. Bye, Brian. Bye. Bye. Wherever your garden grows, grow something with Bunnings. Right, we better quickly before we finish up, kill something off. What's a plant that gets killed a lot we can help people with? I know. We've talked about guava moth in this episode. What about the moth orchid? Phalaenopsis. Oh, nice. Now, Phalaenopsis are an amazing plant to have inside because, of course, you can keep them flowering for months at a time. But they are pretty easy to kill off. And a lot of people do. And normally it's from over interest rather than under interest because they perhaps um, keep them in too bright a light or not enough light um, or leave them sitting in the wet because of course orchids are epiphytes. They're used to getting their moisture from the air. They can't sit in water. They need to have moisture but not just sit in wet soil. I know. Imagine yourself on a tropical rainforest. If you saw an orchid growing, a phalaenopsis, it would be growing up a tree in the bark and I've done this really cool thing at home. It was an ex- I'm saying it it's an experiment, but really I didn't get around to buying any orchid soil. Um, and I just put my phalaenopsis on a pile of stones in a pot, and it's next to some Venetian blinds because we have a very 80s look at our house. And um, it's it's done amazingly, and it's flowering right now, and it's been like that for about six months. That's the thing. To be cruel, to be kind. And when the flowers are finished, just cut the spike back, maybe two nodes from the base, and they'll send out new growth from that point. And you might get another flower spike before the next season rolls around. Yeah. But if you've killed orchids, don't feel bad. I've killed so many myself that one of my colleagues actually came to my home to take orchids out of my care on like an orchid underground railway. <laughs> because she just did not feel I could be trusted. My sister's an orchid rescue woman. She has like about 30 or something ridiculous. Before we finish up, Joe, I thought I'd like to share a little orchid joke with you. Rachel, I'm going to say no. Okay. I just don't believe this joke is going to be worth a listener's valuable time. Thanks so much for listening to Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener, and we hope you join Rachel and me in the garden next week. <laughs>